get into um, the didactic now then. So I was going to talk about the ongoing elements for a CIT program or a CIT model. And then I was hoping San Juan would be on here, but I can send them the link to this one. Um, so the ongoing elements of a CIT model really are the partnership, community ownership, and then the policies and procedures around it. These are things in a CIT program that should be consistent. And a lot of these, I think every agency, you know, can improve on, including our own. But, you know, it's a work in progress for most of the stuff. So really the overview of it is the, the first part is the partnerships of a program. So you try to involve whatever criminal justice element you have in there or public safety element, the advocacy groups or people living with mental illness, and then the providers or the professional groups. You also have to have community ownership in it, which involves a lot of stuff like planning, implementation, networking, things like that. And then having some kind of policy or procedure in place to help kind of continue this stuff. So when it comes down to the partnerships of it on the criminal justice side, and, and we're kind of seeing this locally where it's, it's needing to be stronger. So these are, are, are first and foremost, you want everyone on the same page to know what these programs are or the goal for your community. So a lot of things when you read about CAT models, they mainly focus on criminal justice, but I think it's a public safety thing. And I know Albuquerque, we're kind of trying to address that too. So if we ever see a um, lack in services when it comes to mental health, we'll always involve AFD or the paramedic side of it too, because they're seeing the exact same problems that we are. Now can we better address it all together? But in order to have this, this partnership in the community, you have to include the criminal justice side. So this is your police departments, your sheriff's departments. It's also your corrections. And so we're gonna start reaching out. I think Taos Corrections wanted to join us. I have a feeling that uh, MDC is gonna be joining us relatively soon, because there's a major incident there. And they reached out to us about this. And um, another aspect of it is any of your criminal justice, so your, your DA's office, your public defenders, things like that. And we're lucky or fortunate in Albuquerque to have mental health court. So I think we have mental health court in our misdemeanor courts and in our felony courts, which is nice. We also even have a homeless court to help people in that unique situation. And this all came from collaboration on that stuff. And a big part that you do need is you need command staff involved in this stuff because unfortunately it is the command staff's responsibility to develop policies and procedures and kind of set that foundation for these organizations. And so if you don't have command staff um, buy-in on this and you just have an officer or deputy trying to do all this stuff, it starts to hit a wall at a certain point. So you do have to have that that internal leadership within these organizations. And just out of curiosity, um, Nick, in uh, Sandoval County, do you guys have mental health court or work close with the DA or public defender? Yeah, we actually do. Um, for our municipal and magistrate courts, they get bound over to district court. Uh, and then we do have a mental health court uh, that is run through the 13th Judicial District uh, from here and uh, down south. Okay, nice. And, and Ankin, have you used it at all or heard your guys use a referral to mental health court? Actually, yes. And I've had very good successes thus far uh, with the referrals that I have, have done. Um, in fact, awesome. one, of the, one of my biggest successes was a client that I've dealt with for a couple of years and you guys actually dealt with quite a bit um, down in Albuquerque as well. So it's been good. Nice. 
And what about you, Dietzel? Have you or your folks ever talked to you about Men's Health Court or used it? Yeah, Matt Dietzel, APD. It kind of seems like one of those things that we don't usually go. Like, they kind of do their own thing, and then it gets swept over there, and that's the last time we hear about it, at least from my experience. Now, when it comes to, like, these mental health courts, because that is actually kind of true, it just goes there. Do you think that it'd be more beneficial to have more law enforcement involved in that, or do you like that it kind of comes and frees up your time on that stuff? I think that if we were there, we could actually paint the picture a little better than we did in the report or the DA can. Um, the fact that those just go away, just like those, uh, drug court, same thing. Like, you know, they were completely out of control to the point where we had to arrest them. And then all of that is just left the paper. It's not us anymore. And I guess they may pull the videos now. I don't know, but at least if they pull the videos, they kind of see it, but they don't get the kind of periphery that you get when you testify. No, I agree. What's your take on that, Nick? Uh, you know, it, it strikes me kind of the same as in JPPO and, and everything else, but I know that uh, for the most part, they actually, you know, from my experience, do a pretty good job of keeping tabs on folks. Uh, the person that, that I put through it uh, about a year and a half ago, who I think you guys actually used uh, in a couple of early on CIT classes as a consumer, um, that she was way off her meds and was involved in a domestic uh, with her mom up here. And she was charged with the domestic. She was arrested. And then I was able to funnel her over to the, the court and they were able to get her stabilized on her meds. Uh, and, and she's been out of the system and we haven't had, I check in with her every about six months. See how she's doing. She's completely lucid and, and fully functioning, which has been awesome. So I think for, for those few, um, it, you know, that, that are, that are going to be open to it. It actually is successful and does, does well for our clients. I know I agree. We've had some great stories out of it. It gets people access to resources when otherwise they don't. And you get someone that's there to kind of help you guide that. I just wish it, it lasted beyond the court case too, because sometimes people just get dropped off, but I do agree with you Dietzel that it would be nice to have a little bit more officer um, input or at least them to maybe give updates. Because it's kind of like, oh, I went to court and then I had no clue. I hope the person's okay. And I'll get with the DAs and see if there's anything we can do to, to change that or if there's a reasoning that they're not including law enforcement on it. I think it, it would go a long way on that. Some of the other um, partnerships for this in the community, too, is, uh, you know, if there's any kind of um, public safety commission in areas that oversees public safety, you'd want those people in there as well. One thing, though, about corrections, it is a different um, – it's a whole different animal or game than traditional law enforcement or traditional public safety. Like paramedics are dealing with something completely different. I know right now, locally, there's a big outcry about MDC. I guess there was a major incident there. They're, they're saying that um, they're using excessive force on people with mental illness there or unfair treatment. And actually, I think the... Um, subject of, of one of those or the victims actually reached out to us about this network, which was kind of random, but the Rick Miera is part of the mental health response advisory committee. He's a, a Senator or an old representative, ex representative. He's now chairing um, a committee to look at MDC. And one of the things that they're wanting to do is to develop a CIT program for themselves. 
What I'm concerned about, though, what they brought up was that they just wanted training. And I really am, you know, a strong believer that a true CIT model is more than just training. You have to have that that buy-in and that collaboration. It can't be just like, oh, we gave our guards 40 hours of training and you expect them to fix everything. You know, it's not their job and it's not our job to fix someone's uh, mental health. You know, that's a provider's job, but we have to work together on that. So I hope that it doesn't go that way where they just do um, training, but you never know. But uh, they may be reaching out to, to all of us, so heads up on that. Even you guys, AFD, because they might be calling you guys about some of this stuff and doing intakes and things like that. There's going to be a lot of stuff uh, in the works. Bless you. Thank you. The other part of it is uh, your advocacy community. So this is either, you know, you have to have this collaboration, this partnership with either people living with mental illness um, that are in recovery. So locally, a lot of the groups here like to call themselves peers. They don't like the term consumer, but nationally, and if you're just talking about in general, the term consumer is what is the proper term to use. And that just means it's a person living with mental illness. So locally, if you hear someone, you might say, do you have any peers that might get you a little bit more rapport building? You also wanna try to get family members and the reason for these two groups is because these are who call. Either they're the ones being called on often for um, assistance from public safety, or they're the ones calling for assistance. And without their, their buy-in in these programs or input, there's still going to be that miscommunication. People are going to be thinking that, oh, I call 911 because I'm saying about how my son's attacking me because he's mentally ill, and I want you know, AFD showing up the paramedics but you guys send cops and I never wanted that and there's a big miscommunication and it just creates this hostile community involvement with that which everyone is seeing around there and then you also want advocacy groups and this can be any kind of national organizations that kind of promote the well-being of mental health and things like that so here in New Mexico a big one is the National Alliance on Mental Illness they're probably the largest advocacy group in the United States so anyone that's um, trying to start a program, I always suggest that they start with reaching out to NAMI and their state to figure out what it is that they're wanting. And the reason I bring that up is NAMI is a huge political group when it comes to creating laws. They're the ones that, that tried to pass a lot of laws to make CIT training mandatory everywhere. Texas it took. It actually passed here in New Mexico. They just didn't call it CIT training. They called it House Bill 93. So if you guys remember that, it updated it saying that everyone that receives their peace officer certificate has to have 40 hours of mental health training. So that was a big push for that and it passed here. Um, it can be difficult working with peers and it can be very difficult working with family members. You, the best thing I can say is have the mindset that you know that it's going to be difficult. You're typically dealing with people that are on disability because of their major mental illness. And from time to time, they're going to have um, relapses or episodes where their illness is kind of out of control at the time. And a big thing that we try to tell anybody that we work with that's a peer, right away we tell them, you know, if, if Lawrence is given a class and let's say he shows up and he has a flu, we're going to tell Lawrence, go home. You're sick. Um, we're trying to say, Lawrence, I know that you're sick, stand up in front of everyone and talk. And that goes the same to someone that, that's living with a major mental illness. If you're working with consumers and they're supposed to sit on a board or that they're given a conversation or, or talk at a class, let them know, like, 
your you guys' health comes in first. And if you're sick, you know, step out on it. And then I know Neil's just joined us. Hello. Neil's Rosenbaum here. One of the things to think about with family members too, um, sometimes and advocacy groups. So you might have hidden agendas and stuff. And just realize that everyone's involved in, in different political matters because of their own history and things that have come up. And so don't let it surprise you if someone's trying to, you know, you're working on mental health, but they want to change the domestic violence laws or they want to change DWI laws all of a sudden that they're more in that. People have their own background and that's just something to be aware of, that, that you never know the hidden agendas there. Do you have any tips about working with consumers, Lawrence? Just be patient. I mean, be patient, understand, uh, and it's impossible to understand where they're coming from. Just take that into account. And uh, like I said, be patient. You may have to set boundaries as well. Going in might be the that is a good point. Setting boundaries ahead of time might, might be the best. Yes. Consumer involvement. Yeah, I think it's very important and difficult at the same time. Even just defining the consumer is difficult. If you guys are ever wondering about finding consumers, you can always use um, people that you've dealt with in the field. You could ask them, like, hey, we're, we're doing these programs where we want input on stuff. And this is on the ongoing elements. You want the, these individuals, these family members, and these peers to be there in these advocacy groups for any kind of direction that you're making. If you're wanting to do a policy change, run it by them. I mean, everyone's like, oh, they're, they're going to sell this stuff. It's not dictating what you can and can't do when you encounter somebody. So it's not dictating can you arrest or can you provide treatment or, you know, emergency medicine to them. It's, it's you know, but setting the groundwork, so letting them know what you have to do in your, your respective roles goes a long way because there is miscommunication. There's misconceptions about all this stuff. If you're looking for family members or, or peers in your four-year program for input or advocacy groups, always call your local providers or so whatever hospitals are in that area. Ask them if they have anybody that goes in that maybe does peer-to-peer um, uh, -peer talks or goes in and gives talks and see if they have any recommendations. And they'll, they'll send you guys information on that. Some of the advocacy groups that want to get involved in stuff, especially lately, are kind of anti-public safety stuff. There's a, a woman that is an active protester in Albuquerque that does a lot of stuff. And she runs a, a blog and I think like a, a, a newspaper thing. It, it's very much anti-government stuff. And she's at every location and she's protesting and, and things like that. And a lot of officers are very concerned about her. And they're an advocacy group in a sense. So they're trying to make change. And, and the more and more that we don't talk to them, the more and more that she battles stuff. Well, we had the opportunity because we were forced when there was an incident that they called Tent City, where there was a bunch of homeless individuals camping out in an area in tents that created a big political storm about can they stay there? Can they not? Is it increasing crime? Is it doing things like that? Well, when we went out there, she was there protesting and big trucks about that blood is on the officer's hands and all these crazy signs that were up there. And so we just went and talked to her. We're like, hey, we need help. You know, we want to get these people resources. And we handed her flyers and she just went with us and started passing out stuff because she had a complete misconception of what we were doing there. 
And so now whenever, at least for whenever I see her on protest, she'll always come up and talk to me. And I'll always ask her, like, hey, is, who should I look out for? Is there anyone going to do something stupid? And she'll be honest with me. You know, oh, watch out, this guy's recording you guys. And, but it's just from building that rapport with her, you know. And, and I take the time whenever I see her, if she asks something like, oh, I saw this in the news. Why did, you, why did someone arrest this person or this person? And I'll explain to her, oh, this is what, you know, what we're bound by and all this stuff. And it just takes that time. And sometimes they're just so animated that it's hard to get through. And it's, <laughs> but taking that time with protesters and, and the negative advocacy groups goes a long way. It really, really does. Um, the other thing to get uh, a partnership and ongoing elements is your providers or professionals in this. So the community that's related to the, the, end result of our involvement with public safety. So we as public safety officials get lots of calls about people living with mental illness that are in crisis. Those are coming from those people or from family members or even from advocacy groups. So we covered those. The next step to try to get in a good program is you want ongoing relationships with the hospitals if you can, any kind of um, psychiatrist, psychologists that actively see people, social workers, counselors, if you work in a community that's very um, uh, church-based, you want to try to get any kind of uh, pastor counselors or chaplains involved in these kind of programs like that. Any, anything that you can get. And some communities are very small and may not have a psychiatrist there or a medical doctor, but they may have some type of counselor, like a drug or alcohol counselor, and try to connect with that person. Try as much as you guys can on that. And if you work in an area or close to an area that has a college, figure out what professors are there that teach on mental illness or have a, a program that you might be able to pull from them when it comes to training stuff. See if they're there to help train. And look for any of the nonprofit or private agencies that are out there. So that is like your universities, institutions that do this ongoing training. And it could be any kind of... Um, Programs that are nonprofits like Healthcare for the Homeless or St. Martin's, any of these community organizations that kind of address the, the clientele that we're dealing with on this stuff. And use these people as your trainers when you're developing programs or ongoing class. And, and this should be a, a, a community thing. So with an emphasis to not have to pay them, that they should be volunteering their time or be a representative of that organization. And, Fortunately, when we updated the uh, CIT class in APD, we tried to do the, the, the idea that it should always be an expert in that field talking and then partnered up with the law enforcement officer so that you can students can see that collaboration hand in hand by being, oh, yeah, we can talk to them and they're interacting back and forth. And if some provider is giving too much medical jargon, we have an officer or a public safety person there to help kind of translate it. But everybody in our CIT class volunteers. We don't have, we don't pay anybody on that. I mean, APD we provide us, and if someone comes in from UNM, that's they come in as UNM representatives or uh, noonday. Any any of the the other people or the VA, they're all there on their own dime or represent that organization, which is nice. It goes to show that us as a community are coming together, and it's not the police department saying we have to fix things. It's the community saying there's a problem. Let's help these officers, but it's a community problem. And it goes a long way on that stuff. We use the Mental Health Response Advisory Committee for input on that. And I think any large organization 
or area, it'd be nice to, to have these kind of set up. In Georgia, they have them throughout, and in uh, Missouri, they have these committees throughout the state to provide input and help officers out with resources and providers for training and things like that to keep the costs low. If you really want a successful program, you gotta keep the costs low. If, if it all of a sudden it becomes a thing about money, it's just gonna be a thing about money and it's gonna just kind of get sidetracked away from the community on that. And with the community, the other ongoing aspect is you have to have community ownership. And so this is from the very beginning to even an established program. And, and here in APD, I mean, we started the CIT program in 96, 97 was the first class. And we have struggled with this. I think in the very beginning, there was tons of community ownership. And then it kind of just, I think we didn't invest so much time in that and it went away. And then there's a lot of community outcry that we were using too much force with people with mental illness. And now we're back to doing this and establishing that community ownership. Because one of the things is I don't think, and it shouldn't be this way, but public safety's responsibility isn't to cure mental illness or find long-term treatment for people. It is our job, though, to help people. So if you have someone that's suffering from an illness, I do believe it is our job to help provide them a link to that service. But if those services aren't working, let's try to work together as a community. So in the very beginning of any kind of CIT program, be it your training or just the idea, like, let's get a community involvement, you have to have like planning. So either a planning committee or people that are involved with input. And you're gonna want the advocates, any citizens that have interest in this stuff, consumers, um, family members, the government, the, the mental health community, anything like that. You want everybody involved in it. And you'll notice even if you start setting up these, these ongoing meetings and you invite everybody because you don't want anyone to say that they're not invited. Your first two might be pretty busy and have a lot of people there but it dwindles down very quickly. And then you'll have your main players there or the main people that want to be involved. And for the most part, they're not, you know, once everyone's on the same page with understanding, there's no more of that fighting or it's, it's easier to sit down and someone says, right now there's a big concern about our camera policy that it specifically says you're, that you are required to film people you suspect have a mental illness. So some of the advocacy groups came up and they're like, we're upset. This is clearly targeting people with mental illness. You don't have this for any other, you know, subgroup of people. And I understand what they're saying. And then it just, we had to sit down and explain, like this got brought up because of the language in the settlement agreement. But yeah, I agree. Let's, how do we work this out together? Instead of saying no, you know, we just provided them with the way. I don't know if they'll successfully change that wording, but we provided them the information, and so it was no longer us versus them, but us working together. And when it comes to implementing this stuff, you have to have leadership in law enforcement. I mean, I don't necessarily think to be a leader in law enforcement, you have to be a supervisor in, in the sense, but with certain things like policy and program matters, you do have to have certain ranks and, and be in a certain position where you can implement this stuff, which I think it's great that Nick, that Rio Rancho gave you especially to do that as a lieutenant, and that's been one of the big national changes is they want in law enforcement a lieutenant or command level or above to kind of oversee these programs because it helps when it comes to, to pitching for budgets or employees, staffing levels, things like that. One of the things that is a big part of CIT is the training curriculum. I can uh, probably talk hours on the frustrations of creating curriculum. The triumphs. <laughs> yeah. 
or the triumphs, as Niels would it's say. It's hit and miss. Yeah. But one of the things I can say, you want to try to include the community as much as you can. If there is an expert out there in your community that does PTSD, ask them, hey, do you want to teach? Almost all, I haven't had anyone say, no, they don't want to teach. But then all of a sudden you present them, can you write the curriculum with what you teach? They can't do that. They hit the wall on that one. That's where you start losing people. And if, if you're concerned about that or people start having this, this uh, hesitation, just write the, the little curriculum for them. They're going to teach it their style and, and monitor their style, make sure it's good. But make sure you have that curriculum down and what those learning objectives are. Otherwise – your training is just not going to be yeah, valid. This is Neil's. I mean, I, I think Matt's exactly right, especially if you're starting out a program and you reach out to trainers. Trainers want to teach what they want to teach. So if you go to someone with who's a PTSD expert and you're just getting off the ground, I would give them a lot of latitude of what to teach as long as it's not like neurobiology or something <laughs> that has nothing to do with what you're doing. But tell them this is the general thing you want, him or her, this is the general thing you want. Then they're excited because they like to teach what they like to teach. Then you get an excited instructor that's better than just kind of going up there and reading off of a book. With, for our CIT program, we only have three main objectives for the whole course. And it's safety, destigmatization, and resources. So each class, when we have someone, we ask them, make sure you touch on some of that stuff. So safety is officer safety or safety of family members or people living with a mental illness. So that could be de-escalation techniques or safe approaches to crises, um, things to say, body language, anything like that. And then you're going to want to do destigmatization stuff in the sense of we try to include people living with the mental illness so that you see a positive side of it, even though sometimes it can kind of go haywire and, and develop its own stigmas. But you want interaction in a safe environment so that it's not, yeah, I get that we're learning this stuff, but Every time I see somebody that has a mental illness or I think does, it's these dangerous situations because that just implants these stigmas in your head. And there is a lot of stigmas associated with mental illness. So if like PTSD, let's say a big stigma now is only veterans get it, and that's not true. And so if you're noticing these stigmas in your community, that's when you address it. Oh, we're doing PTSD. Who thinks it's only veterans? You know, that's not true. And find those stats for it. And then the other thing that I think really kind of drives home a more confidence in students, especially in public safety, is resource knowledge. Because you can get training all you want on how to talk to people and how to safely approach people and tactics or this is the proper way to, to do some type of emergency medicine. But if you don't know what to do at the end, you get lost. And it makes people start just trying to adapt to what they think is going to happen which normally ends in jail or unfortunately a lot of times some kind of use of force because you've reached a point and you just don't know what to do and you just try to contain. And so kind of really pushing those resources instead of like, here's a number, but really kind of explaining what that resource is for extends that knowledge to the people on the field for that. And so then they, they have that confidence when it comes down to stuff and it's less intimidating taking these mental health calls for them. It goes a long way. A big thing, too, on the end of that one is uh, uh, feedback and, and networking and problem solving. So if you're doing training on this stuff, ask, you know, what's what's the problem that you guys are seeing? You know, what are you seeing in the field? Or, or hey, you're a provider. Why, why is everyone going in and out of the system so much? 
you know, what can we do to fix this? Is it a lack of money? Do you guys want us to go to legislation? You know, is it a new law that needs to get put in place? What is it? And, and involving everyone in there, it helps you also not feel like it's your responsibility as paramedics or as law enforcement. It's not our responsibility. It's a community's responsibility. And sometimes that helps with the ongoing stress, especially negative news articles. You come up where it's, you know, why do the cops do this? And it's an easier way for them, those at on the field, boots on the ground, to be like, okay, I know it's not just us. We have this program. It's a community thing. You know, it's a whole community, and I shouldn't feel like it's just me. And the last part of ongoing elements is policies and procedures. And so this seems to be more uh, a newer thing in law enforcement, especially that's being pushed now, is to have policies on and guidelines on your interactions with people in behavioral health crisis. So Baltimore just got either investigated or just went through a DOJ settlement agreement and they were targeted or brought in about the relationship or interactions between law enforcement and minorities. But the findings of the investigation was about law enforcement's interaction with people with disabilities. So they were found that they were violating people's ADA rights and stuff with mental illness so it was completely opposite of what they were asked to come in for. But a lot of that went to they had no policies in place. So people were like, oh, I don't know, you just do this. And it is unfortunate that we have to have policies, but it protects any organization by having policies and procedures, and it protects the community. But don't make them outrageous. You know, make them legitimate policies that are actually doable off of what previous training you have. Don't expect people to be social workers if that's not their role or to be counselors if that's not their role. But you're going to want policies either internal or actually written down about what type of training program you're going to do to continue this. What is the training for? Um, the size and the scope of it. How many people you want. Nationally for a CIT program, the expectation for on the ground responding to calls is 20 to 25% of your organization. Us at APD, someone decided to make it 100%. And then 40. And then we got dinged on that. So they did a, a staffing study and they said to make sure that someone is available on all shifts, it's 40% of our field officers. And so they put that in the settlement agreement, which is a huge number. So the goal that we have now for our program is 40% to have additional training in CIT style policing and resources. Nick, do you know where you guys are at? Nick Onkin, Rio Rancho PD. Right now we are right at about 50%, I think. We, wow. we saw what you guys were doing and, and kind of had a feeling you guys would get cut back. And so we kind of started where we thought you'd end up and that's about where we landed. The, th the thing is, is we're calling all of our uh, cadets coming out of your academy and BCSO's academy, basically CIT trained because they've already gone through 40 hours or more of CIT training uh, when, when we get them fresh. So that, that's also bumping our numbers up exponentially. Yeah, I can see that then, yeah, especially if you guys are, are counting the academy 40 hours as that. And a lot of places are doing that. Um, for a good program, it really should be a CIT class, should be voluntary. And I would really say if when officers have about two years on at minimum, I think our push now is they want everyone to have it so they do it right when they're about to get off of OJT or right when they're off of OJT, they come in. 
but you kind of have to get your feet wet and you got to start learning your own style of communication and how you deal with the public and how you, you do that stuff and then come back for training. And that way you can better understand how to adopt the stuff in real life situations. When you just start doing it right away, I think, especially with de-escalation techniques, you don't have that experience level to start thinking about how to actually implement this style of communication or de-escalation. So it's kind of hard on that. What's your tale on this? You've been doing this for a long time. I, I have two, I have two ways of looking at this. I understand that in a true CIT program, you have to have that buy-in. But I look at it at a dip from a different way in that we want our officers to have the skills necessary to, to, to do this sooner rather than later. I think it, it, I think the sooner we train them, it has the possibility of changing their career track. And not just that they're going to be CIT officers, but that they're going to be more community minded and that they're going to get less complaints. And if an officer gets less complaints and is in IA less, his career path could change drastically. So even though I know we have to have that buy-in, my, my take has always been train as many as you can and the good ones will step forward and do what they have to do. The bad ones will use it when they can. And my, my take on even the bad ones is if someone's not really good at it, but they do what we've trained them to do, it becomes kind of like a self-fulfilling circle. They try it, and even if it's not, if it's canned, but they try it, they may get the re a good response and not have to use force. And if they get that response, they're more likely to do it again. And then the citizen sees that they're doing it again, and so they comply, and it becomes an endless circle. So that's how I see it as. I think that if we want to equip our officers the best we can, and I think we sell we sell them short if we say, well, you're just not good enough to do this. I think they're all good enough to do it. And if they use it, they're more likely to use it again. And I think it, it's a better thing for the community and the officer both. That's my take. No, that was great input. I mean, it's kind of just, we can set the standards that we want. You yeah. know, that this is our expectations and it can help somebody. And I think it does. I. What you said about uh, it affects their whole career, I 100% agree with you on that. When you I, can you... save someone's career by by changing their mindsets on some of this stuff, especially in the law enforcement realm. And I'll use an example, you know, a, a nameless individual, but someone that we had in one of our 40-hour classes, when they were making them go, um, he just kept saying, I don't get this. And he kept doing the scenarios, and he says, this just feels so unnatural. I'm just – and I pulled him aside – um, his father was an officer that I knew really well. And so I kind of coached him through it. And he told me on one of the scenarios, I've had the same scenario twice in the field. And once of them, I, one time I ended up in IA because I just went and grabbed a hold of the guy and made him do what I wanted. So I explained them the process. We walked through it again, coached him through the whole scenario one more time. And he went from saying, I can't do this to... I think I could try this. Two and a half weeks later, there's a jumper on one of the bridges, and this guy that's barely got a year and a half on talks that guy down from the bridge. And I, I can tell you that's got to change his career track. He, I mean, he, he sees the communication works. He sees that he can do it. And I don't think he'll ever go into a situation thinking, I can't do this. I'm just going to have to go and grab a hold of that person. 
So that's my example. And, you know, even if we change one person's career track, that's, I mean, I think it's worth it then. No, that's a, I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, no. I think that's actually great. And I mean, I think one of the things you didn't hit on is he saved that guy on the bridge. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you're saying you saved that guy's career, but he saved somebody's yeah. life too. I mean, look at all that kind of different things on that. Hey, Matt. One of the, yeah. Hey, Nick on can rear Rancho PD. I think one of the other things that's kind of interesting to see is how there's becoming an expectation uh, from the policymakers that CIT be utilized. We, we recently revamped our entire use of force policy. I know you guys did too. And part of our use of force policy is whenever possible, uh, CIT techniques and or personnel who are especially trained are to be implemented as part of the continuum almost. I know we're not supposed to use the continuum word anymore, but as part of the process of dealing with somebody um, prior to use of force whenever possible, obviously there are times when that's not an option, but whenever it is, we by policy are required to attempt to use CIT techniques prior to utilization of force. So I think what we're going to see is that uh, individuals coming out of the academy are going to need these tools, like you said, whether whether or not uh, they are perfect, the perfect personality for it. Um, and we're going to expect our officers, all of our officers, to use talk tactics and and this skill set in their day to day field use. And I know personally, uh, I probably would have kept myself out of a few complaints if I had had this training earlier on in my career. I you know I was one of those salty guys going through the the first you know my first CIT class probably seven or eight years into law enforcement and I knew pretty much everything already that we had talked about but I'd learned it you know from the school of hard knocks not you know from the classroom environment where it would have at least been presented to me on the upfront up end of things. No that's great input and I couldn't agree with you more on that. And it is, I think our, our policy on use of force does have de-escalation tactics. And we've had some people also get, get some retraining about tactics, about time and, and why did you push the issue? And, you know, that's a big thing that I think is changing to national law enforcement is instead of um, hurry up and get things done and contain it's take your time. That time is on your side and they're wanting it to be, Take your time, even if that's leaving and coming back later. It's no longer that uh, once you're there, you take control and you don't back down. So it is a unique time in law enforcement in, in the nation, and we're going to be seeing a lot of change. And a lot of it is in CIT-style stuff, which is great. Um, I, I do find the value in it, just like you guys are saying. I do think it definitely helps people, and it should be on the forefront of their training, not the back end. We had a, a recent class with some Sandoval guys, and I guess one of them worked with you, Nick, at UNM. Got some interesting stories about when you 16 someone with something in the back seat. I was just like, wow, Nick left that in the back seat, you don't say. We'll have to talk offline. I'm not sure what yeah. you're <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a funny story. Either but, that uh, or we need to have a priest and a, a doctor <laughs> invoke all the rules. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was funny. There's a doctor in there. Yeah. We can invoke that. This is now a clinical session. So one of the last part of it is uh, dispatch policies and procedures, and then the policies and procedures for patrol officers. So we are now, with our settlement agreement, has that we should be continuing training, ongoing training, or not ongoing, but additional training for um, dispatch. 
So telecommunicators should receive 20 hours of additional training is in our settlement agreement. Some organizations make their dispatch go through all 40 hours. I think it is valuable instead of them just kind of keeping someone on the phone and then hoping whoever's in the field just handles it. I think they play an important role in that first contact, especially their call taker. Maybe they could even not have to dispatch just because they could refer them right away to a service and that saves a, a emergency responder there. Or maybe they're on the phone can help de-escalate it, which would, would stop that first interaction that could lead to a use of force on it. And so you have to have some kind of policies and procedures in place for that, even if they're internal, about when you get a call, you know, what are you asking this person? Do you ask them if they have a mental illness? Do you ask them if they have weapons? These things need to be in place and held. It shouldn't be like, I'm scared to ask someone if they have a mental illness. It shouldn't be like, this guy's rambling this on and on. They should feel okay and confident saying, sir, do you have a mental illness? And that can come through with training because it's not natural to say that. And then the last part of this for ongoing elements is to maintain your public safety referral portions. And that could be a goal of the CIT program is to keep your public safety available for the public. And so if you're taking someone to, for a mental health evaluation and you have to sit with that person and you're, you're tied up with that person for six hours on a shift, you're going to start not wanting to, to, to jail divert. You're just going to start looking for charges. And so we're fortunate enough to, in Albuquerque to have a pretty quick drop-off system. We've worked it out with most of the emergency rooms here that we just bring them in, we fill a little one-page sheet or sometimes even just talk to an intake nurse and we're done. And, and that's nice. I mean, sometimes we can't relay all that information, but if that officer feels the need to, they can weigh the mask to talk to the charge nurse or someone in, in more direct access to, to give the whole story. But other places like Virginia, when I was up there for a CAT conference, they were telling me that they have to get like a warrant to take someone in. So they're out with somebody. They were giving me an example of a guy that had a gun on the railroad tracks. And so he was going to kill himself, but he wasn't sure if he could do it with a gun. So he was either going to get hit by a train or not. And that they had to detain the person, but they couldn't put cuffs on him or even put him in a car until they wrote up like a warrant and had a judge sign it, saying there was enough probable cause to believe this person was a danger to himself that they could take away his rights to take him to the hospital. And I was just like, that's outrageous. You know, I'm like, do you guys, what do you guys want to do? And they're like, Oh, we don't look for things like, is he drunk with a gun? I could just charge him with that because they're like, it's so much quicker to just arrest somebody. It's like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that sucks. And that was one thing that they're struggling with. And for however backwards New Mexico is with laws, we have a lot of rights as law enforcement when it comes to mental health um, treatment. So it's easier for us to just kind of articulate with just verbal articulation while we're taking someone to the hospital. We don't really have to do any kind of court paperwork like Texas, Virginia, and a lot of these other places do, which is nice. So that, that's pretty much the, the basics. And I know I really went into that one more about, these were just the ongoing elements of a CIT model or CIT program. Then I will start on the didactic. So I was gonna discuss about the operational elements of a CIT program. So last week I talked about the foundation or kind of the, the starting part, and this is kind of the, um, well, it's the operational elements, what you kind of need to make it keep going and stuff. The main aspect of it is your CIT officer or deputy. So your uniform patrol is who you should be focusing on, the person that is out there interacting with someone in a behavioral health crisis. 
you know, mental health crisis or with your, your partners in the community. Some of these things to look for when selecting them and you're developing a program is one, do you want it voluntary? Do you want these to be officers or deputies that, that step up and say, I want to do this. I want this additional training and responsibilities because that can include keeping stats. It could be taking better notes, making certain referrals. We at APD use voluntary in a sense. Before it used to be all voluntary. Then this was voluntold saying everyone has to have it. And now we're going back to a voluntary system. So we're asking for volunteers. Um, San Juan, how are you guys doing it? Is it voluntary or are you guys assigning people? Scott Tackett, San Juan County. Uh, it's voluntary. Nobody's forced to do it. Are you guys giving incentive pay at all? No. So some, some organizations give incentive pay, saying that it is a specialty and to kind of maintain that. We used to do an incentive pay, and I think they're trying to go back to an enhanced one where they do an incentive pay. One of the things, though, when you're looking at this is to, to kind of have validity in the program is maybe have a, a type of selection process for the officer. Be it you guys can, you know, it's your organization, it's your program, so you can limit it to as much as you want or open it. So you can say you only want officers or, or employees that have two years plus on have some kind of experience or someone that has taken some kind of prerequisite training like uh, you might say all FTOs have to do this so field training officers or you might say if officers want to do this that they have to do a board interview so they put in an application and they meet with whoever's in charge of that program explain why they want to do it you know what have they heard about it any kind of misconceptions and then go from there on that so originally in, in APD, there was a, a process like that. So you turned in an application, it was reviewed, and you had to turn in a letter of recommendation. So moving forward with the enhanced CIT, what they're trying to do now, and this is voluntary, but this is kind of going back to the uh, original CIT model that I'm speaking on. So we looked at it and they did a staffing study, and they said they need 40% of field officers to make sure that there's someone with this unique training available at all shifts which just seems like a high number to us, 40%. Nationally, that's 20 to 25%. So in order to become that for us, they have to take an entrance exam and pass that first. So that entrance exam is just to go over baseline knowledge of CIT. Then they have to turn in an application saying they want to do a, a letter of recommendation and a letter of professional intent, meaning or interest, professional letter of interest. So they have to write a letter saying why they want to do it. But that should kind of show, and that's because this is additional CIT stuff. But those are all things to think about when you are creating a program and kind of building that foundation. And just so that in case it's ever audited or you guys want to do a study, you can say, look, we validate this by officers because of this, this, and this. And so it, it, it adds some validity to it. Um, a big thing to do, like I said, is to kind of focus on your patrol officers. I think CIT training is good, and if other people in the department want to take it and you have time to allow it, I say go for it. We have a lot of detectives that are interested in it and we allow them to go through it if, if it helps them with their investigations or if they have a family member with a mental illness and they want to take it, if they have the time, we don't close it off to them. But our field officers do take priority. So that is our focus on it. One of the things that to kind of establish is what is the role you want them to do? 
is all that you're wanting is just additionally trained officers that have these skills and, and is that the ultimate outcome you want or do you want them to, to maintain more of the program programmatic aspect of it so turning in contact sheets when they encounter someone with a behavioral health crisis or keeping some kind of statistics to say you know i've encountered 50 people in a behavioral health crisis and i use zero force and i referred them to 50 different resources which can kind of really help show agencies that are trying to do a, a reduce use of force or show that they're having positive interactions with mental illness the problem that, that a lot of places nationally are getting is people are pointing the finger saying, you know, you cops are just killing everyone with mental illness, but they have no, nothing to back up saying otherwise. And that's just, we have to get used to collecting data, which is not fun. And sometimes it's confusing, but if you have a CIT program, you're like, no, we don't look at this. We actually document, these are just our CIT officers. That's only 20% of the officers. So look how many contacts they've had and, and they've had, zero uses of force or they've had minor uses of force and it's easy to show on that but so what are their roles and functionings that you guys expect of them what is the training that you expect them to complete or get certified in and then what kind of skills do you are you expecting them to bring on a call and then who should access them do you want supervisors to only request them do you want dispatch to only request them so that's one aspect of the operational aspect that's probably the biggest the, the second one, and we are even lacking on this, is the dispatch. So who are your call takers? Is it a regional call center? Is it your own call center? Do they know what kind of stuff to look for? Do they know when to ask for a CIT officer? And sometimes we have to set those, those limitations. So do you trust your call taker to say, I know this person's calling about a burglary, but it sounds it's behavioral health related, so I'm gonna ask for a CIT officer? Because if someone pulls those CADs, it'll say that. But you want those dispatchers to have that training where they feel that they have enough knowledge to say, I believe this is mental health related. So some of it is, do you think your call takers or dispatch need the full training curriculum? Are you doing a 40-hour, a 30-hour? You know, do they need all of it? I, you know, I, I'm on the fence on it. I think if they want to take it again, they could take it. But I don't necessarily think it's a 40-hour class for someone that's a call taker. It seems pretty extensive to me. But some kind of introduction to the concept of CIT, what the policies that, you know, deputies and officers are having to deal with when it comes to it, what officers and deputies need. So what is that information you're looking for that helps them when they go there is a, is a big one to go. And then, if, especially if it's call takers, what are the resources that are available? Can you divert this call from law enforcement altogether and maybe save that body to deal with an emergency because it's someone that just wants to talk? Can you link them into like a crisis line? Can you do things like that? And do you have policies for that? And it, it frees up the whole public safety system on that. And then also, what kind of in-service training do they need? You know, does dispatch need ongoing training on this? If you are, are re requiring your deputies and officers to have continuous about this, I would suggest having dispatch in the same boat. You don't want one side to be more advanced and upset with the other. And maybe even if they could be together on that, because dispatch and call takers are going to get a whole different aspect of than what officers and deputies are seeing. And sometimes knowing each other's uh, styles or what they're required to do goes a long way. The other thing about it is more about the uh, coordinators of a program on it. So 
most programs in order to have it successful is you need a law enforcement coordinator. So someone that, that is assigned to continue those outreaches with the communities, to keep stakeholders involved, to do outreach for training and looking for other trainers on that. And this can be like the go-to person for if anyone's calling your organization, like, hey, is there a mental health section or a CIT, this, and they can just point it out, oh, call this person, call this other one. Nationally, they, they do suggest that it be a supervisor because you are, you know, looking at manning levels and you're dealing with, with subordinates and stuff like that. But it could be anyone that, that an organization feels is needed. You do want to try to locate somebody in the provider community to be a coordinator. So the easiest way to do that is to look at what is the largest system in your organization or your area and then try to find a contact person there that you can just directly build rapport with. So that if there's an issue that comes up, you just call them and then they can figure out their system to set up meetings. Our largest one, for the most part, is UNM and Presbyterian, but really it's UNM. And so we had to really find hard on who has the, the easiest access to, one, the drop-off center, and then who has access to help us provide training. And so we were able to build a good rapport with the director of the psychiatric center, and we meet with him, and, and it's been wonderful. So if there's been problems, he's very open to, to hearing us on it. It took some time, though. I mean, it's very odd when he's like, cops want to meet with me. Why do cops care about this stuff? But once, you know, it's more apparent that we're trying not to, to hurt the people that he's seeing, they're much more open to that stuff. You also want to try to find a link or a coordinator in the advocacy community. So someone that, that's, uh, you know, proponent for rights with people with disabilities or, you know, like the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Because they're, they're going to be the most vocal group that you encounter when it comes to negative things in reference to interactions between law enforcement and people with behavioral health crisis. So, and in the course of our job in law enforcement, it's, it's only a matter of time if some level of force is used on people. And right now, the hot topic is to say a force is used, it's someone either with um, a disability like mental illness or it's a race thing. That's the hot topic that media is focusing on. Now. And if you don't, if you have a program and you don't have that connection to an advocacy group, you're not going to have that support for you. So we've been fortunate. We've always worked really well with the local NAMI chapter, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And Whenever we've had some articles come out because we've used force and sometimes taken someone's life with mental illness, NAMI has always gone to bat with us or had sat down to talk to us about the situation and how to improve it. Instead of, you know, setting up a, a picket fence line, or, you know, picketing line, picket fence line, <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, protesting and doing things like that, they've actually sat down and helped us, which has been nice. I wish I could say that about all the advocacy groups, but... Anytime we have one that we encounter, we'll sit down and have an open conversation with them. So even the, the hardest ones are typically nice to us. And if you have a, um, a multiple agency type CIT program, so if you guys are looking at it regionally, to, and, and I don't think we have one here locally in New Mexico. I can't think of any regional CIT programs. But a lot of other locations, they have regional where um, – a bunch of counties get together and they host CIT trainings together and you have all these agencies. But you, if you're doing a, a, a program like that, you need to assign somebody to be in charge of that. Someone that's, that's keeping an eye on all the organizations, building those relationships with each law enforcement entity, with each provider in those areas. And, and that's just basic for those ones. 
So those are the coordinator aspects of a good program. And then another aspect of these programs for you know, the operational elements is the training. Now CIT shouldn't just be all about training, but it is a huge aspect. And right now there's a, a national outcry for, we need more training, law enforcement needs more training in this, they need more training in this. And sure, I mean, I guess we could need more training in everything. We need better training in driving too because we're crashing cars all the time. But I mean, you don't hear an outcry on that. So one of the good things about having these partnerships too is you're not owning this. You're not saying this is a law enforcement duty. Oh, I see some of the mental illness or how we were talking about earlier, I see someone that's down and out. You know, we're owning this as law enforcement. But developing these collaborations, you can say, look, we're being tasked with this as law enforcement. It's not our duty. How can we look at this as a community? But so with the training, really the, the, the standard is a 40-hour of some type of certification class. There is no over-certifying body. So in each organization, look for your, your state or who issues your, your certificates to be in law enforcement and get it certified through them. If certain areas have a college, you can see if a college will certify it too, like UNM used to do the certification on it. So you can do different places like that to get it certified. Some organizations across the country will do a abbreviate like a four day class or even some will do a three day class and say it's CIT certified. The biggest outcry though, from what I've read in research and just news lately is people are pushing for 40 hours. So if you're doing a program and you're saying someone's CIT and let's say they're in court, that's gonna be an argument. Well, I don't, you know, why did you only do three days worth of it when everywhere else is 40 and they have less uses of force? And it's a hard one to argue. When you're looking at creating the didactics and stuff, look at what is, first, why are you doing the training? You know, is the training because you are using excessive force or you wanna just better establish community relations or is it just to, to give your guys these abilities for de-escalation when they have it beforehand? So know what the goal is on that and start working on your curriculum from that kind of stuff. And so you're, you're gonna wanna have just your general mental health related things, stuff about co-occurring disorders, so substance use. Personality disorders are always fun to know about. Um, they're very engaging on that. What kind of equipment, the legal aspects that you do, the basic stuff, and there's a lot of information out there on different 40-hour classes, and I've been compiling information from across the country on this. So if anyone ever needs this stuff, I have a lot of it, and I'll send it to you guys. One of the things that we do and is a big push is on-site visits. We started doing that again. It is a pain to do. It's hard to coordinate, and it's hard to get places to open up to allow a bunch of law enforcement in there to see how things are done right now. There's a, a big misconception on both sides. And so that has been very difficult, <laughs> but it is putting people in those situations. You're putting officers in, the, in that situation with those um, providers and with people living with mental illness. So it, it's, they're having to interact in a positive way. That's not because of an emergency. So it is nice and it helps people develop better rapport and it helps those providers also start respecting your agency. One big aspect of CIT training is how do you test or demonstrate the knowledge in de-escalation? And so some, before we had a, a House Bill 93 and House Bill 93 did scenarios that were video scenarios. So they wanted people to watch a scenario that was a video 
and then they would, would either show what they would do or not do. And that's one way of evaluating, I guess, de-escalation. But the, probably the most sought-after one is reality-based training or doing scenarios with actors or with other officers. And this has its own, you know, difficulties because do you hire professional actors? Do you let, you know, field training officers do it? Do you let your own staff do it? Whatever the case is, come up with what those agendas are for those trainings. So what are the outcomes you're, you're testing for? What do you want people to see? And try to keep those actors in line for that because reality-based training is great if you have good actors. You know, you can learn a lot or you can take from it like, oh, we go through scenarios and we just get hammered nonstop and people yell at us and they won't get anything beneficial from it. But if you're wanting someone to change their approach to stuff or use skills that they are just now learning, you've got to give a safe environment for them to practice where they can fail but be safe there because you're trying to have people adapt these skills to their already um, repertoire of tactics and, and everything on that. So that also goes with dispatch. So you might want, if you're doing dispatchers, is to have them do some kind of scenario. I think that would go a long way on that. And so if you're doing the curriculum for dispatchers and training, you're going to want them to look at how to assess that the call is a CIT-related event or should use a CIT officer, the appropriate questions to ask the caller. You know, even if you have a cheat sheet or a checkbox, that might be a good thing to give them, like, do you have weapons, do you have a mental illness, and go off of that. And then how do they identify the nearest CIT officer? Do they have a list of all officers that are certified? Do they keep it up? Is it part of the call sign? How do you guys identify that stuff? And then what policies and procedures do you guys have in place for dispatching? Is it um, an offense that someone can get in trouble for? Is it just, it's just written in there because we want it written down? You know, know the reasons why for that. And the last part about these, um, about the uh, operational elements is about the mental health receiving facilities, be it the ER, the emergency room, or luckily here we have a drop-off center, the Psychiatric Emergency Center. This can be very difficult, and it's not a quick process to make change in the medical field as law enforcement. But I think it's easy to, if you continue with this rapport building idea and, and aspect, it's, it's easy to start building those relationships and explaining the importance for having a good drop-off center. So you want an area that's, mainly for law enforcement only. Maybe that's also the ambulance bay or something, but somewhere where you don't wanna to have to walk people in through the main lobby, or if you have to walk someone through the main lobby, then they let you in the back right away so that you can take cuffs off or anything like that. So a single source of entry is the best bet. So it's nice that at the psychiatric emergency center, we have a sally port, we go, it's law enforcement, we buzz in, they let us in right away. It's quick on that. You also want someone if, if you don't have a 24-hour access like uh, an ER in your area, you're going to want somebody in that community that's available 24 hours that you can call when you have one of these uh, crises to say, I'm out with this person, what do you want to do? Even if it is taking someone to jail, but having the, these on-call access and, and the need for it, because this helps prevent the use of force and this helps raise community standards. And this is a medical thing. It's not traditional law enforcement. So we need to have that stuff. And so, and also something about the time, the turnaround time for law enforcement, you're going to want it to be where you can just go in and drop someone off, honestly, and make it a 10 minute process. If you add time or wait time to it, you're going to just discourage 
the use of that system for law enforcement. We want quick access, quick and to the point on it. That's how we work. What are the, the, these are, this is what I saw. This is what happened. I want to be done. This is your job now. We want it quick. We want it like you go drop someone off. This is a criminal complaint. You're done. If you don't offer that option in the medicine, but you have that option in jail by all I do is write up a quick criminal complaint and drop them off, you're going to keep using that, that option of jail. So you want to try to reduce that on them. And then trying to find about any kind of disposition. So if you don't have access to these emergency rooms or facilities, what other options do you have? Do you have an organization that will go out to the house? Do you, is your organization um, okay with you doing crisis lines, passing those out? Find what other options are, are out there and then continue the, the, the communication with these facilities. So figure out what's, what's missing or what's going wrong. Our officers or your officers or deputies, are they having problems with drop-off? Collect that information and present it in some kind of ongoing meetings. And sometimes, you know, these places will have a rash of, well, these people are coming in so odd, you know, is there a new drug you guys are seeing on the street? And you can translate that back to them. That goes a long way. Or maybe they want some safety training. You could give that. Just developing that stuff goes very far. And, and so if you're having troubles, you have someone to bring directly to there if it's employees. And if all of a sudden you have you know, officers and deputies that aren't doing searches when they take someone in and people are pulling out knives in the ER, you're going to want to know about that so you could address it with your group. And I wish I could say that stuff never happens, but it's always, it just, it seems that at least with us, it happens at least once a year. Someone just gets a little bit lenient on, oh, it's a down and out, or oh, this is medical based. So they just wait till the ambulance shows and they just don't do a pat down. They think it's like, it's on them and, and, we are, we are the, our community's safety experts and keepers. So we have to make sure that everything on there is safe. So this really was just a brief about the ongoing stuff about the core operational elements of a CIT program.